welcome to this week's episode of Khaki Malarkey. We are very excited to be having James Holland here, who is a hugely popular historian of the Second World War, author of a number of books on the period, including Normandy 44, The Battle of Britain, Five Months That Changed History, Dan Busters, the multiple volume of The War in the West, and of course his recent book, Sicily 1943, which we'll be talking about today. James is also the co-founder of the Chalk Valley History Festival, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, season broadcaster, co-presenter, alongside the wonderful Al Murray on the podcast, We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Hey, James. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. How are you, more importantly? I'm, I'm absolutely fine, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really all right. So we thought we're going to jump straight in. You are now going to be the guinea pig of one of our new kind of little segments we want to do. Um, and we want to kind of give our view, well, our listeners, a 30-second summary of your book. Now, I've got a timer at the ready. So we're going to okay. see if you go, if we can hit 30 seconds of summarising the brilliant Sicily 1943. No pressure. So, yeah, no pressure. Well, Sicily 43 is um, the first uh, big narrative history of the Sicilian campaign in the Second World War in the summer of 1943 uh, for about 30 years. And it's got literally everything in this story. It's got air, land and sea. It's got special forces. It's got mad Germans. It's got planes. It's got hilltop towns. It's got Patton and Montgomery. What's not to like? 20 seconds. I feel like you've done this before. I haven't actually, but, um, <laughs> but uh, it's amazing, isn't it? You can't, I thought that was about 30 seconds bang on, so there you go. And for people that might not be familiar with what was happening in the Mediterranean during World War II, can we set the scene for them a little bit? So this is the next phase of operations against the Axis powers um, following the campaigns in North Africa, isn't it? Yeah, so um, what's happened is in January 1943 has been the Casablanca Conference. And the Casablanca Conference is, is um, where the chiefs of staff, so this is the senior military figures of America and Britain, meet together with the two political heads. So that's President um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, um, and Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And they meet in Casablanca. And at this point, the uh, North African campaign is going, broadly speaking, pretty well. So uh, the Battle of Alamein happened in October through to the beginning of November 1942. Um, Rommel's Panzer Army Africa was, was kind of walloped and, and forced to rapidly retreat. Um, and then about a week later, in early November, a joint Anglo-US invasion force landed in Northwest Africa. And the idea was to kind of capture the Axis forces in a pincer movement. Um, preferably sort of around Tunisia, something like that. And, and uh, in January 1943, uh, at the Casablanca conferences, the chiefs of staff and the political heads of Britain and America are meeting to kind of decide what they should do next. Now, it is agreed already that a cross-channel invasion of northern France uh, is out of the question for 1943. They just don't feel they're ready enough. And it's such a mega undertaking, such a huge operation, that you just don't want to be doing amphibious operations unless you're pretty much guaranteed that you're going to win them, um, because the cost, the, the 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 cost of failure is just too great, uh, and would set back your wider war aim. So it is agreed that they're going to probably do it in 1944, but that means you've got increasing numbers of Allied forces in the Mediterranean, and it is expected that the Tunisian campaign will be over sometime in the spring or early summer. Um, and when pushed, the, the um, uh, General Eisenhower, who is the top military figure for the Allies in the Mediterranean at that time, says, well, I think it'll probably be about mid-May. So on that basis, they then think, well, well what are we going to do with these huge air forces, naval forces and land forces that we're accruing in the Mediterranean? We might as well do something. And the British go, well, look, you know, we've always had this kind of slightly opportunistic uh, approach to strategy, which is to kind of sort of, you know, overall aim, smash the axis, um, defeat defeat the Nazis and get rid of Hitler. But, but you know, let's probe away at the weak spots and see what happens. The American view is completely the, the different. It's basically draw a straight line to Berlin and kind of go for it. So they're kind of reluctant to abandon the, the cross-channel invasion in 1943, but they accept that that is not going to be possible. Um, and the British go, well, look, hang on a minute. If we can go, if we invade Sicily, wouldn't this be a good thing after we finished in North Africa? Because um, if Italy isn't out of the war by then, that will certainly hasten it. We can maybe overthrow Mussolini. And if we if we go into Sicily and take Sicily, then we've got a launch pad. We can either go into Italy or we can think of other things. But the bottom line is, if Italy's out of the war, then the Germans are either going to have to cede all of Greece and the Balkans and the Mediterranean and Italy, which are currently occupied by Italian troops, or they're going to have to occupy it themselves. And if they occupy it, that's really good news for when we do finally get around to crossing the channel 
1944. And it's also good news for, for Stalin and the Eastern Front as well, because, you know, the Germans can't have troops absolutely everywhere. So the Americans kind of agree to this. Uh, and as it happens, the North Africa campaign does end on the 13th of May 1943. And Hitler has massively reinforced it. So it's a whopping, whopping um, defeat for the Axis forces. And although most of the men that are put in the bag are Italians rather than Germans, a heck of a lot of German material is lost. Um, a huge number of Luftwaffe planes, um, huge number of tanks, guns, you know, as well as troops as well. Um, and, and that is the setting in July 1943, where the Allies are kind of poised to invade Sicily, you know, it, it, it's it's the logical next step. And of course, what that means is suddenly you're going from North Africa, and you're actually going into Europe, uh, and you are you are storming fortress Europe. We um I did a TV documentary for Sky History earlier in the year, and part of an argument that our historians we interviewed, uh, what it was looking at Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt is when they were looking towards going up to Sicily and Italy that it was part of Churchill's motivations in wanting to obtain a kind of foothold in the Balkans and kind of asserting like a bit more of an imperialist hold and that really influenced him, his decision in going towards Sicily. What do you kind of think on that? I wondered if that you'd agree with that perspective? No, I don't really, because I think that's too far ahead at that stage. You know, oh. if they, you know, they're, they're not looking at the Balkans at that point. Um, they're not looking at, you know, there, there is no imperial ambition in Europe for Britain at all. Uh, um, you know, there is in the Far East and, and you've got the jewel in the crown of, of India and all the rest of it. And you've got various um, uh, territories in Africa and elsewhere. But that's not part of the deal in, in Europe at all. No, I mean, it's, it's just it's just an opportunistic strategy uh, and one that to Churchill and to the British chiefs of staff makes perfect sense. It's just literally that, you know, and the reason you go into Sicily rather than attack into Greece or, or, or further up the leg of Italy or, or um, straight away is because when you're doing an amphibious invasion you need air power you need air cover you need air support and you need local air superiority over your invasion front and the only way you can realistically do that is is Sicily from North Africa because you've got the tiny um, British island of Malta in the Mediterranean which is 60 miles south of um, the southeast coast of Sicily and then you've got the Cap Bon Peninsula in Tunisia which is about 100 miles from the uh, western coast of Sicily uh, and so you can use those air forces from there, but much further afield than that, it, it's not really an option. I mean, I don't, I don't really buy into this whole, whole kind of imperialistic thing. I mean, one of the arguments goes in later on in the Italian campaign, where um, Alexander, after the fall of Rome in June 1944, um, Field Marshal Alexander is the commander in chief of the Allied armies in in Italy. And he says, you know, if you um, if, if we maintain our momentum, you know, we could cross over the into the Apennines, get into the Po Valley and then we could either turn left or right. We could turn left into France through the Alps that way or we could turn right through the Ljubljana Gap, which would take them into the Balkans and then drive up northwards into kind of Austria and, 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 and Germany. Uh, and that um, is, you know, has a double effect of kind of preventing the Soviet Union getting in that that part of the um uh, part of the Iron Curtain that happens post-war kind of arriving in that eastern part of Europe. So that's the kind of thinking behind that. The reason this argument happens in 1944 is because post uh, the fall of Rome, it has been agreed that they're going to withdraw a number of troops from the Italian theatre to um, uh, and, and bolster a, a joint Ang um, American French invasion of southern France to augment what's happening in Normandy that's launched obviously in June 1944. Um, so that's what that's where that all comes about. But certainly in the early part of 1943, when they're thinking about Sicily, that doesn't come into it at all. Can I stick with the geopolitics for a sec? Because you were talking about the USSR in all of this. Yeah. What is the geopolitical backdrop? Because the Russians are sort of desperate for the Allies to open up other fronts by this point, aren't they? Yes, but by the summer of 1943, um, you know, it. it, it it's, it's all over on the Eastern Front. I mean, it's all over with Stalingrad. I would argue that it's actually all over on the Eastern Front from kind of November 1941. The issue at stake really is, is that Stalin is still very nervous in the summer of 1942 when Case Blue is launched, which is the German attack towards um, the Crimea and then down towards the um, oil fields of what well, now Azerbaijan, the Crimea. And he's still pretty worried about it at that stage. But but by the summer of 1943, you know, the Red Army is absolutely transformed. They've, they've kind of, they've, they've separated the wheat from the chaff in terms of commanders. They've got some very, very good commanders. Um, they, they've worked out the concept of the deep battle, which is basically like um, pulling back the, uh, um, an almighty battering ram uh, and letting it just fly into the kind of face of the enemy, in which case are the kind of sort of the, the Germans and the Axis powers. 
and, and what they do is they front load it with vast amounts of, of troops, of infantry, of tanks, of artillery pieces, uh, and supporting ground support aircraft. Um, it's incredibly violent. Uh, lots of people die in the process, uh, which means that they can never sustain these offensives for more than a kind of, you know, a couple of months, sort of eight weeks, 10 weeks, something like that. And then they have to have a massive almighty pause, kind of create a whole load of new, new divisions and start all over again. And so when you see the um, Eastern Front, what you see is a series of, of massive offensives from the Red Army from kind of, you know, the end of Stalingrad onwards. Um, what tends to happen is that there's occasionally kind of localized counterattacks where the, the the Germans are able to kind of reorganize, rebalance, and kind of counterattack on the basic on the on the back of the Russians overextending themselves. But basically, it's only kind of one-way traffic. These are these are very localized affairs and don't really count for anything in the big scheme of things. And the Russian um, that that is completely at odds with the with the Western Allied approach, which is a much more kind of broad front approach, and which is to sort of never ever go backwards, and so slowly but surely sort of grind your enemy down and just keep pressing forward all the time. Now, obviously, there are accentuated offensives, but basically the pressure is being maintained all the time, and that's quite different from the kind of Red Army approach. But I would say by 1943, I mean you know the Germans launched the Kursk offensive. Um, um, on uh, you know the beginning of July, but it is immediately called off the moment that the Allies invade Sicily, um, and that is the last time the kind of Germans go forward in any meaningful sense um, in the Eastern Front. Um, and again, you know what Rokossovsky, who is a German field commander, um, um, Soviet field, field commander rather, has done is created this bulge around the Kerr salient. Uh, and has basically done the lines of Torres Vedras from the Peninsula War, where he's built these kind of defensive lines, and there's seven of them in total. Um, and I think that the Germans barely penetrate two. So, you know, it's, it's an absolute disaster for the Germans, and they get pushed backwards, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's all over by the shooting. But, but Stalin is very, very mindful that, that his approach is very, very costly in terms of lives lost. And there's absolutely no question that in the Second World War, in terms of you know blood spilt, the Eastern Front is the kind of number one place. But all of this has to be contextualized in terms of strategic overview. And, and, and strategic overview, um, strategic importance doesn't necessarily, necessarily equate to boots on numbers of boots on the ground. So in terms of Economic damage is absolutely no question that the West absolutely trumps the Eastern Front. In terms of lives lost, it's the Eastern Front that trumps the Western Front. It depends on what you're you're grading this stuff. But Stalin is very mindful of the colossal loss of life on the Eastern Front, of course, um, and he wants the Allies to do their full whack and and, and contribute. And so, you know, uh, opening up a Southern Front in 1943 in the Mediterranean is sort of a, you know, it's to show the, the, the Soviet Union that the Allies aren't just sort of sitting on their arse doing nothing, that they are actually contributing and doing something meaningful. Uh, and, you know, it would be very, very hard, I think, for the Allies to justify having these vast armies, armed forces in the Mediterranean without actually doing anything in the summer of 1943. I love that analogy, not sitting on their asses. So... <laughs> The Allies, they're not sitting on their asses. Here they are, they're approaching Sicily. And obviously this is one of the first times that they've, I, well, would you say that they've gone into a landing with airborne assaults, um, kind of yeah, going in with 100%. a full malarkey here. So obviously, what were the challenges? Well, the challenges are absolutely enormous. And, and you know, the trouble is, is that when you're looking at these things, you know, it, we know in retrospect that the Sicilian campaign lasted 38 days and, and resulted in a kind of whopping victory for the Allies. But, but, you know, when you're planning this stuff, it doesn't seem quite so assured. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting is most of the planning is taking place while the Tunisia campaign is still being played out. So the final plan is accepted on the 2nd of May, which is kind of 11 days before the Tunisian campaign is finished. And all the senior commanders that are involved in the in Tunisia campaign are therefore pretty much earmarked for Sicily as well. So you've got them doing two jobs. In the case of Alexander, you know, he's army group commander in Tunisia and he's having his hands full trying to fight that battle whilst at the same time trying to plan for, for Sicily. And, you know, there's a complicated business. And then the Sicilian plan poses all sorts of problems because you've got airfields that are all over the place, all over the island, but you want to get to Messina because Messina is in the northeast of the island. And that is the closest um, part of Sicily to the mainland of Italy. And once you've got the Straits of Messina, you've got Sicily. Uh, but it's also the most problematic in terms of getting there because the Straits of Messina, which are only kind of a mile and a bit wide at their narrowest, are incredibly well defended, very, very heavily defended. You've also got, uh, um, 
you know, problems of attacking by naval forces up in that corner of, of Sicily. You've also not got a lot of beaches. So there's all sorts of problems. So where are you going to land all these men? You're going to land them in the southeast, which is the closest bit with beaches to, to Messina. But then you've left the west of the island um, exposed with uh, potentially enemy airfields still in enemy hands and all the rest of it. So how do you how do you sort of square these issues? You're also talking about kind of pretty large distances over which these forces have got to uh, to arrive. You know, they're, they're sailing from from you know, Algeria, from Tunisia, from Egypt. Egypt is kind of 900 miles away. I mean, it's a flipping long way. You think about the channel. I mean, you know, Normandy seems like a long way away and it's sort of 70, 80 miles away. You know, this is kind of 10 times that amount. So these are huge challenges. And, and the one thing you have to bear in mind when you're planning an amphibious operation of this scale, the one thing that trumps absolutely everything is that it doesn't fail. You know, you cannot have an undertaking of this enormity, of this magnitude, being a big, almighty, colossal cock-up, particularly when momentum is now with the Allies. And the problem is, is that right in the middle of the planning phase, 8th Army, which is scheduled to be going into Sicily, comes up against um, a predominantly Italian forces in Infideville, which is in northern Tunisia, and basically hits a brick wall. They can't get through. And for Montgomery, this is quite problematic because if the Italians are defending northern Tunisia really tenaciously, then what are they going to do when it's actually Italian soil in Sicily? Now, chances are that, that in Tunisia they're going to have shot their bolt and, and they won't be as good. But can you afford to take that risk? The answer is no, you can't. So you've got to front load that invasion with a lot of troops to make sure that if the Italians are incredibly tenacious in their defence of Sicily, you've got the wherewithal to be able to deal with that. You've got the manpower, you've got the muscle to be able to bludgeon your way through. And that overrides the kind of the, the planning operation for Sicily. And, and, and quite rightly so, as it turns out, it, you know, Italian resistance, Sicilian resistance melts away once they land, but they weren't to know that beforehand. That's the point. So you've got to you've got to cater for the kind of worst case scenario. But to put this into some perspective, I mean, you're talking about kind of, you know, two and a half thousand uh, vessels. You're talking about three and a half thousand aircraft. You're talking about 160,000 men being landed in the first 24 hours, which is bigger, actually, in terms of men deposited than D-Day the following year in Normandy. You know, and, and you've got to marshal that from multiple different places. All these different forces have all got to converge on Sicily at the same time. You're also bringing into play glider troops, uh, paratroopers for the first time ever, special raiding squadron in the, the SAS as they had been in North Africa. You know, it's a heck of a lot to think about um, and, and covering a hell of a lot of, um, of of water in the Mediterranean. And, you know, they are they are catering for 300 vessels to be lost. It's a very, very serious business and the challenges are absolutely enormous. And you also have to remember that at this stage of the war, nothing like this has ever been attempted. No, actually, nothing like this has ever been attempted in history. Because although there was the Anglo-US um, invasion of Northwest Africa the previous November, that was very, very small beer by comparison. It was a very good logistical test, but it wasn't a test in terms of the enemy facing them because a deal had already been done beforehand. You know, the Americans and the British haven't really spent that much time operating together. You know, the America, um, the United States in the Second World War has never put out a field army in strength at any point in the Second World War until this point. So the 7th Army, when it becomes 7th Army at midnight on the 9th, 10th of July, 1943, is the first field army to go into operation wow. in the Second World War. So there's an awful lot of unknowables and there's an awful lot of, uh, lot of stuff where where the Allies are in planning this are thinking, holy moly, how's it all going to pan out? I mean, you know, it's it's not a foregone conclusion at all. It's just mind blowing, really. I think you forget the depth of how much actually comes into something like that. It's something you can't, we can't even imagine that. <coughs> At all. No, just, absolutely what, not. And also, just one other thing I'll just say oh, is, is that, you know, you think about it, rewind the clock to three years beforehand. You know, Britain struggling back across the channel from, from the retreat from Dunkirk. An army in absolute tatters lost all its kit. Um, United States doesn't really have an army worth talking about in, in May, 19, May, June 1940 at the time of Dunkirk. And yet in three years, both countries have had this exponential growth in their armed forces and particularly in their armies. I mean, it's just absolutely astonishing. And there's this incredible shot of all these Sherman tanks being loaded up onto um, uh, onto landing ships where these are 100 metre long um, landing craft 
which are just revolution pioneering you know they have a draft of only kind of four foot eight inches and they're, they're absolutely revolutionary in terms of amphibious operations absolutely enormous and you can see the shoreline in tunisia i think it's in Bizerta actually in northern tunisia with just these rows upon rows of, of landing ships and these rows upon rows of, of shermans rolling up the quayside to, to kind of sort of go onto them and you think wow you know in three years from kind of sort of ground zero to this that is some development, that is some depth, and it's all going to be tested for the first time properly um, in Sicily. That really is insane. I didn't want to jump too far ahead, but I wanted to just kind of ask, was there anything in the back of the minds of any of the planners thinking, OK, we kind of have an idea of potentially wanting to do Operation Overlord the following year? Is this going to be a bit of a test and what we're learning here or not? Or was this just not even in the thoughts at all? They kind of want to be like, let's get Sicily done. And then we obviously approach as we go kind of thing. No, no, no absolutely. They're, they're thinking about it. Yeah, because because they, you know, the Western allies know that if they're going to take any country, they're going to have to do amphibious operations, whether they're going to invade Italy or whether it's the cross channel invasion the following year. That involves transferring a vast amount of material across seas. You know, there's just no getting around it. You know, Britain is the most amazing launch pad for the cross channel invasion of, of, of Nazi occupied Europe. But you still got to get it across the sea. So absolutely, you know, Sicily is a really, really important testing ground. And actually, that is one of the points that the, the, the Allies make at, at the Casablanca conference, the British make particularly. They say, look, you know, come on, you know, we need to test this stuff. We need to kind of work out whether, you know, our plans and the landing ships we're developing, the landing craft we're developing, they actually work, whether we can put these things together. And I think what you see at this time is suddenly the, the Western Allies are kind of working out their modus operandi. They've kind of worked out how they need to operate. And at the back of the mind, the whole of the back of the mind for both the British and the American right from the start of the war has been this kind of steel not flesh policy. You know, we're not going to have the slaughter of the First World War. You know, we're not going to have millions of our young men being slaughtered. You know, what we're going to do is we're going to get mechanization, do as much of the hard yards as we possibly can. You know, we're highly industrialized nations. We have access to the world's resources. We can get anything we want because, you know, we have huge merchant fleets and, um, and uh, navies and all the rest of it. And, and what, what Phil Marshall Alexander says is, you know, this is, this is, um, this is a brotherhood of air, land and sea, you know, the naval forces, air forces and land forces all working together. And that starts to kind of, by kind of April 1943, in the closing stages of the Tunisia campaign, you're starting to see this, this brotherhood, this marriage start to really come together with kind of new kind of development of strategic air power, which is sort of, you know, heavy bombers going off and doing their stuff on their own, but also tactical air power, which is close air support. This is where you've got air forces directly supporting operations on the ground, troops on the ground, in cohesion with naval forces as well. And, and suddenly you're really starting to test that with Sicily. You know, that, that Sicily is the kind of where you're seeing the real metal of this, this, this strategy, this doctrine of, of how you approach modern combat. You know, people are very sort of, they're very sort of um, taken by the kind of tactical chutzpah of, of the Germans and, you know, Tiger tanks and Panthers and all this kind of stuff and, you know, rapid firing machine guns and stuff. But you're kind of, in, in doing that, you're kind of slightly losing sight of, of that, that kind of bigger picture and that kind of operational level, which is the kind of third ingredient war. So you have the strategic level, which obviously is your overall aims, what you're trying to do. You've got the tactical level, which is kind of obviously the fighting bit. And then you've got this operational level, which is the kind of nuts and bolts. It's how you fight your wars. It's how you make it work. It's shipping, it's logistics, it's factories. It's kind of, you know, and everything that the Allies do, there is a point to it. You know, there is, there is a reason why we have Sherman tanks and not, not Pershings in Normandy in 1944, which is the kind of next generation heavy tanks. It's because, you know, you can get more Shermans into theatre than you can Pershings because they're smaller uh, and they're more versatile and they're incredibly mechanically reliable, which which when you want to maintaining, you know, you're trying to maintain that, that kind of force, that advance, that is ease of maintenance, reliability, absolutely trump incredibly complicated beasts that have thick armour and big guns. You know, so all this sort of stuff is really, really important. And Sicily is the kind of, is, is, is the tipping point. It's the point where suddenly the Western Allies are the real deal. They've finally sort of got their, their modus operandi together. They're kind of working it out. And, and, and it looks good on paper, but it's not until they actually get to Sicily that it's properly tested, that you've got this first American field army tested in the field. Uh, and, and, you know, they come up with, with you know, they absolutely um, um, get top marks, really. So let's get to the nitty gritty of it then. 
we've talked about the kind of background and what is happening in Europe at the time, what's just happened in North Africa. But what actually happened? You've mentioned that it was a bit of a, uh, an easy campaign. It was a, a victory. I've read a lot of uh, war correspondence memoirs recently and the way they talk about it, particularly Alan Wicker, who I absolutely adore. He talks about the Italian campaign as if like they, as soon as they hit the beaches, Italians were just running at them with white flags, like, oh my God, please just take us. We want to surrender to you. <laughs> like, so what was actually going on there? How did it go in the, in the early stages? Well, so what you've got is um, the Sicilian troops are, are this, they're mainly local Sicilian troops who are very, very badly trained uh, manning the coastal defences. And they're actually mainly, uh, um, they do mainly run away. They're not interested. They've shot their bolt. Morale is absolutely um, been shot through by this stage. And I think it's interesting, the reason why the Italians fight so well in Northern Africa is because by that stage, you've got a cadre of highly experienced men who are able to, you know, who've learned on the job whilst fighting the North Africa campaign, who were able to kind of sort of spread that knowledge and experience down through the ranks. All of that is missing by the time you get to Sicily. So actually it ends up being much, much easier than, um, than the, the, the Allies think. The problem is, is because they've so front loaded it with, with, with troops, there aren't that many vehicles, which means the payoff for being so cautious on the actual invasion is speed i mean that that is what you're losing and what happens is once the americans and the british and the canadians land and have this this i mean the americans have the toughest time of it around jella where there is a sort of concerted albeit not very well coordinated joint german and um italian counterattack, uh, which they see off actually with, with in the big scheme of things comparative ease um then the German troops are able to go, OK, right, well, we can't rely on the Italians. Let's reinforce our own position and let's regain our balance and let's just defend the northeast of the island and leave the Italians for, for you know, the rest of the island can just be left to the Italians. Um, and because of that slowness of that advance in this incredibly testing conditions, I mean, just blazing heat of over 40 degrees, you know, endless mountains, lots of malaria infested mosquitoes, not very many roads, the roads they have got, most of them aren't, aren't asphalted, you know, tarmac. So you can see the, you know, the enemy, the Germans can see them coming from miles away because they've got someone with very, very good Zeiss binoculars on the top of a hill and they can see this big squirrel of dust of troops and, and tanks and things moving, rumbling up. So you can blow those roads, you can put blocking uh, positions onto those roads uh, and, and held, hold up the Allied advance. All the while you're um, regaining your balance and getting yourself into into some kind of semblance of defence. And that's what the Germans do. Um, and the problem with Sicily is that Sicily, the terrain, the topography completely lends itself to defence. So although um, the Allies are numerically superior to the Germans, the Germans are massively reinforcing and they kind of hold the defence aces because they can always see the Allies coming and they can direct their fire. Um, and they can just hold the whole process up. Um, and that's why the Italian, the Sicilian campaign starts to kind of sort of grind to a bit of a halt. I mean, in the big scheme of things, 38 days, if you ever go to Sicily and you stand on one of those hills like Azoro or Troina or Centurope or, or one of these hilltop towns that are, are scenes of such kind of bitter and awful fighting, you really think, you look to yourself and you think, God, 38 days to, to capture this place, that's not off bad going. But at the time, it seems quite sluggish. But again, don't forget that the Allies have this policy of kind of broad front kind of advances of no retreats, making sure you've got enough arms and, and men and ammunition built up before you can do your attack and so on and so forth. Um, and that is surely the right way to go it because there's nothing worse than capturing something than being counterattacked, knocked off that hill and, and you've just wasted all that blood for no reason. You know, that's not how to maintain morale. So the kind of slow and steady broad front approach, I would argue, is probably the correct one. Um, but it does mean that it's just it seems a bit stodgy when you're looking at the map and you're looking at the arrows on the map back in Washington or, or London or whatever. Or if you're an armed can I ask who you 30 years later. Sorry, I was going to say, can you, can, who was driving that more? So do you think it was more... You say uh, it got a bit sluggish, but who was who was in charge of the operations at the time? Do you think that was more of an American idea or more British? Like you said earlier about the, the Brotherhood, which I mean picks up really nicely on a lot of ideas I look at in like the relationships between um, uh, places in wars. What do you think? Was there a bit of a, a clash of egos going on? Who was trying to lead it? Who was trying to take control? And what effect did that have? Overall, our strategy is sort of agreed by uh, at the very top level. So so. 
you know, Eisenhower, who is the Supreme Allied Commander at this point, is hugely respectful of Field Marshal Alexander. Well, he hasn't quite Field Marshal at that point, General Alexander at that stage, uh, um, who is the Army Group Commander, because of his vast experience. I mean, this is a, you know, Alexander is a man who has commanded troops in battle at every rank um, imaginable, right from, you know, from the from second lieutenant all the way up to kind of, you know, seem to be Field Marshal. So, you know, he, you know, he's fought in multiple continents. Uh, um, he's got an amazing track record. Um, he's probably the most experienced commander on any side in the Second World War. So, you know, you kind of listen to what he's got to say, if you're Eisenhower, who has no battlefield command experience whatsoever, but he's a fantastic diplomat and administrator and planner and big vision person and strategic leader, which is exactly what you want. So they're all kind of sort of in agreement with this. I mean, I, I think where you're kind of sort of, you might be steering me towards is sort of Patton and Montgomery, um, who are the two army commanders. Uh, and, you know, both of them are difficult people. They're irascible. They've got monstrous yes. egos and the rest <laughs> of it. But, you know, Montgomery is pretty, he, he's, he's a very good operational commander. He doesn't have much tactical flair, but that's not the Allied way. You know, tactical flair only gets you so far. And it's much better to kind of win the battle and win the war than it is to win a small engagement with some la-di-da kind of fancy tiger tank movements. Um, so, yes, he has his detractors, but I, I, you know, and yes, he's difficult and prickly and all those kind of things. But actually, I think Monty is probably the right man for the job. I mean, there's some other potential candidates and other sort of, you know. Um, allied generals who are incredibly competent who don't get the kind of you know the promotions or the recognition that they possibly deserve but i don't think i don't think Mon montgomery's a bad choice the interesting thing about about, about Patton is Patton is incredibly inexperienced at, uh, at this level at this time um and so at the start of the sicilian campaign it is only under you know it is completely understandable that the british should be a little bit kind of you know well we don't want to kind of kind of overestimate how good the Americans can be because they haven't been tested. They've never fielded a field army before. So, you know, whereas we've been at it for quite a long time. Uh, and that doesn't mean to say that you will hold all the answers, but it does mean you've got greater experience and experience really, really counts. Um, they're coming from the East, they're coming from, from Cairo. So it makes perfect sense, you know, logistically that they would land in the Southeast and take the kind of, be the, the, the kind of lead force. But, but also from terms of experience, it makes perfect sense. What's really interesting is you see that, that as the campaign develops and, Amer and the Americans really prove their worth with, with bells on, I mean, just logistically. So they, there's this bit where they kind of, you know, they, they see off the counterattack at Jella and then they clear the Western part of the island. And although the opposition is really, really slight and the Italians are offering very, very little oppo at all, the logistics, the challenge of logistically of mounting such an operation across that terrain are enormous. And actually what, the, what it does is it tests the American system and they pass with full colors. I mean, they really do. Um, what is interesting is that the moment the Americans come back and they're, they're confronted by the Germans and a heavy line of German defenses, they have exactly the same problems that the British do, i.e. You know, they're hitting very, very solid defences and the only way they can get through is bludgeoning their way through by superior firepower and, and kind of, you know, just sticking at it longer, uh, which is exactly what the British and the Canadians are doing, basically. So Patton's kind of sort of chuntering. Patton is, is a massive egomaniac. Uh, and he's an extraordinary character. In fact, actually, he's sort of quite like Trump in one way, in, in so much that he's always got to be top. He's always got to be best. You know, he's always got to be number one. And that doesn't mean to say that he's a bad general or anything like that. I, I wouldn't say that. I'm just saying that, you know, he is an extraordinarily odd individual. You know, he loves war. He loves warfare. He's incredibly aggressive. And I would say that, that he's got to be number one and the United States has got to be number two, you know, after that. And so everything that he just sees his entire life as one big competition for excellence and for exceeding and coming on top and standing on the top of the podium. So the British are an obstacle to that. Uh, and he takes that very personally. But but what is also interesting is, is we only know this because of a small amount of chuntering to, to colleagues, but mainly because of his diaries. And I think one has to be very, very wary of um, apportioning too much emphasis to diaries because diaries are, are a bit like talking to, the, to your shrink on the couch at the end of a long heavy day you know it's kind of sort of 
it's it's the email that you write knowing that you shouldn't send it for 48 and hours <laughs> in, after 48 hour days you're not going to send it because it's too incendiary you know it, it's getting stuff off your chest you know when you're wound up and you have to remember that these commanders have gargantuan amounts of responsibility you know the lives of many 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 young men on their shoulders uh, and obviously you know when you feel strongly about something you're going to kind of fight your corner and, and you see that time and time again but but i think i think historians putting that on a kind of on national levels i think is often very very wrong you know sometimes inevitably it's on a national level because you know it's british versus american and who wants what but usually it's just personality um, and, and you quite often see clashes between Americans um, and you see clashes between between Britons. I mean, Tedder, for example, is the Air Force commander. You just can't bear Montgomery. I mean, absolutely loathes him. Um, and, and, you know, obviously there's no Anglophobia there. It's just they just don't like each other. Um, and that's fair enough. You know, you can't be expected to get on with everybody. The, the point is, can you work together in a to, to, for a common cause, a one common goal, which is defeating the Axis forces and the truth is yes they can and they all do um, and I think a lot of the the race to Messina and all this kind of stuff is yeah there's no race to the Messina as far as uh, Montgomery's concerned or Alexander's concerned and what's really interesting is that the moment the Americans prove that they've got it and got what it takes both Alexander and Montgomery go bring it on come on in and join the party you know let's do it together fantastic great you know thank you for your help I mean so it's 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 completely overblown in my my humble opinion uh, whereas the, the germans in, in contrast um you know i mean the, the allies are a marriage made in heaven compared to the kind of the, the axis alliances which are where where basically the nazis just have sort of nothing other than absolute contempt for all their allies and and, and trust has completely broken down at the highest levels between the italians and the and the um the, the germans at this point um you know Phil Marshal Kesselring, who is the senior German commander in the Mediterranean, is desperately trying to kind of sort of keep his peace with the Italians. But at that higher level, it's it's absolutely just completely shot. No, you completely cottoned on to my plan there to bring up uh, Patton and Montgomery, because I just think they're <laughs> such interesting figures. Like you say, they're, both such, they're such massive personalities. And um, one of the, my favourite things that I read about uh, Montgomery was that whenever there was a camera near, he would just start pointing, importantly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> he would just look at things and just act like he was in charge of something, which is interesting then when you look at how obviously dominant Patton was as a personality. Um, he had some pretty shocking incidents in the Italian campaign, as we know. Um, but yeah, yes. yeah, it's interesting to see that. How well, but also, the, you know, what... I mean, it, it came much more naturally to the Americans who were already in a sort of hyper media age already, and, and less so to the British who are, you know, by nature kind of, you know, you don't you don't shoot a line, you don't swank and boast and all this kind of stuff. It's just, it's kind of, it's not part of the kind of British culture, whereas it's much more accepted in the, in the United States today, even, uh, um, but certainly, you know, back in the back in the 1940s. And what the American commanders realised is that there's a massive competition for kind of media coverage and for space. And, and that, that influences the kind of the senior war leaders and politicians and all the rest of it. So actually presenting yourself as a, as a character in inverted commas, um, um, and someone who's very distinct with, with a brand is something that's incredibly important to the Americans. But it, but Montgomery is really the first person to really understand that from a British point of view. Hence the beret and the kind of, you know, the slacks and all the rest of it and the kind of, sort of slightly kind of dumbed down kind of regimental kind of uh, uh, um, snappiness. Because he recognises that the vast majority of the British troops are now conscripts. They're kind of, you know, the civilian army really trained for the duration. And so you don't want to seem too removed from that. You don't want to seem all spick and span and kind of military kind of um, finest. You want to kind of look a bit more casual, a bit more kind of so that you can relate to him. And he also realises that if he doesn't look spick and span and he doesn't have the kind of traditional cap and, and has the, you know, certain affectations and the beret and all the rest of it, he will stand out. And so he does. But Patton is absolutely from the, cut from the same cloth. I mean, you know, the, the polished helmet liner, the breeches, the cavalry boots are looking immaculate at every single turn, the kind of the resolute chin, you know, all of that is just it's an image. I mean, it is who he is, but it's very, very deliberate. 
And, you know, he's, he's never happier than when having photographers all around him all the time and press people and stuff. And he gives them exactly what he wants because he knows that it will end up in the United States and in the, you know, the free world. And, and he'll become better known, which will further the American cause and further his cause and further the great American army and all the rest of it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, you know, Monty's doing sort of pretty much the same thing. I don't really think there's anything wrong with that at all. I mean, I think that's quite, that's quite sensible. You know, politics always plays a part in military decision making. And if you can influence as a as a as a military man you can influence politics on the ground and fight your corner and push what your men are doing and the sacrifices they're making by getting column inches in the newspapers and on newsreels and all the rest of it then great bring it on i mean you know you were mentioning alan wicker i mean alan wicker is very kind of, sort of dismissive of mark clark you know mark clark was also kind of fighting for kind of airtime and, and media coverage in italy in the italian campaign when he was commanding the u.s fifth army which incidentally also had british units in it um and, you know, he would always only ever wear a field cap, which are those sort of, you know, peakless side caps. Yeah. Uh, um, obviously, he wore, you know, when he was going to the front, he wore a helmet, but he would never allow himself to be photographed in a helmet. He would only wear a field cap uh, because that, again, was distinct and, and, and it made him look good. And that gave him column inches. Uh, and, you know, you see people sort of go, I'm disgusted by the vanity of Mark Clark. But it's like, <laughs> Why? I mean, that doesn't make him a bad, bad general at all. That, that means he's fighting his corner and fighting for the kind of, you know, the column inches of, of Fifth Army. That's, that's no, exactly. He's, he's doing They're the right all thing. Pretty you know. more, why not? It's <laughs> <laughs> clearly worked for Patton. Everyone refers to him as Gorgeous George, so it's clearly having a Well, yes, it? but it's also, I mean, he, he was famous at the time, but I mean, he was particularly famous because, um, you know, largely because of the, of the, the movie, the biopic of Patton. Um, in 1970 or whenever it was and, and you know and I would say in, in our understanding of the Second World War you know those those bits that are being covered by successful Hollywood films tend to be kind of um, you know more resonant than those which aren't. Can I take yeah. it back to something that you were mentioning earlier about how uh, one phase in the assault on Sicily it's all sort of starts to grind to a halt from the Allied side what changes is it just kind of an attritional thing or is there a kind of a breakthrough moment there? Yeah, so what happens is, is, is the British are pushing up through and they come out of the hills and they get to the Catania Plain, which is this sort of comparatively flat bit, but it's full of little sort of, you know, dikes and, and, and river features and all the rest of it. Um, and it's also malaria infested. And the far side of the Catania Plain, the foothills of, of, of Mount Etna, looming over the whole of northeast Sicily and much of central Sicily, kind of like Sauron's eye from Lord of the Rings, is, is Mount Etna. Um, you, you can't escape it. And of course, the Germans by this point have, have fallen back behind what they call the main defence line, the Hauptkamp Linear, which is also known as um, the San Stefano line, uh, um, which is a sort of defensive position where they're making the most of these foothills of Etna to, to get eyes on the British advance. And the British are coming, they, they've got to cross basically this kind of open flat ground with full German guns kind of pouring down on them and, and they just don't make much headway. Um, for, for obvious reasons. The, the, the real breakthrough comes just because the Americans and the British then kind of take a wider kind of approach. They kind of push themselves further west and, and they realise that what they have to do is just take one hilltop town after the other. And it's just it's just weight of numbers, weight of firepower, it just sort of grinds the Germans down. And the, and the Allies are better able to resupply their frontline units with men and, and, and artillery and ammunition than the Germans are. And, and it's just it's just attrition. But, you know, with, with some sort of moments of brilliance thrown in and, and tactical brilliance thrown in, in into the mix. But it's incredibly tough and involves American, Canadian and British troops basically climbing almost perpendicular slopes and prizing these Germans off their positions. And it's a freaking nightmare. I mean, it's just absolutely horrific. Because most of these mountaintop towns, there's one road leading in and there's one road leading out. And you still need these axis advances to get to the next place. So it's just one hill after another. And it's amazing. I mean, you can stand on a place like Azoro, which the Canadians take in an amazing night action uh, where they basically come around the back, climb up this kind of near perpendicular slope in the middle of the night, um, take the top, take the, the observation, the German observation post by surprise um, and don't don't give up. Um, and managed to hold on to it. And it's an incredible feat of arms. Um, and actually, the commander is uh, is the son of John Buchan, who wrote 49 Steps and Green Mantle and all the rest of it. Um, but anyway, you can stand on Azoro and you look towards Sauron's eye, you know, Mount Etna, and there's just one hill after another. So about 
10 miles away is Ajira, which sort of looks like something out of Middle Earth, frankly. And then beyond that is Regal Bhutto. And then beyond that is Centurope. And beyond that is kind of, you know, Adrano and Paterno. And beyond that is, is Mount Etna. And so it goes on. And it must have been just unbelievably demoralizing. But it's just, it's, it's guts, it's drive, it's superior firepower. It's just grinding the enemy down, basically. God, I can imagine if they had um, Ain't No Mountain High Enough playing, they would all be furious. All <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. They absolutely would. But I mean, you yeah, imagine what it's like putting on a tin helmet in, you know, 40 degrees heat. I mean, we all know that metal um, is, is a great conductor of heat. So it's like putting your head into a furnace. I mean, it, you know, it's just, but, but what do you do? You either fry your brain um, or you risk kind of being hit by shrapnel. So, you know, what do you do? I mean, nightmare. So in terms of motivation, where do they get that motivation from? Because like you say, it's pretty horrendous. And a lot of these, the, the, the men have been fighting in North Africa. They've been fighting for a long time. It's not like they've been able to just sort of head home, spend a few weeks recuperating and then come back. So how do they sustain that motivation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, I think you, a lot of it is, is because, because your mates are doing it and you don't want to let your mates down. Um, that, that intense camaraderie, which all frontline units understand and experience. That, that is what really keeps cohesion. But it's also because the Allies look after their men a lot better than the Axis forces do, which are part of a totalitarian state and where they don't have any choice in the matter. So making sure they do get cigarettes and their three square meals a day and, and supplies, um, and, and that they feel that their men are being careful, that their commanders are being careful with their lives and they're not just slaughtering them, uh, uh, not being reckless with their lives. I think that is also part of it. And this is just an exception that so this is something that has to be done. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is, it's awe-inspiring when you're, when you're standing on these mountains. You just think, how did they do it? You know, what motivates anyone? I mean, a British guy, but a, particularly America. You know, imagine you're from the Midwest. You know, you're from Iowa or Missouri or something. You've crossed oceans and you're fighting up some godforsaken hill in the middle of Sicily. I mean, why on earth would you? Um, and it's all those all those things above, you know, it's, it's because you are being spoiled with Coca-Cola and, and Camel cigarettes and Hershey bars and in the British case, cups of tea and all the rest of it. You know, all the stuff, you know, we, we, we all laugh. Well, yeah, but we laugh <laughs> about cups of tea, but actually it's incredibly important, you know, and, and also one oh, of the I key, agree with key that. things. <laughs> yeah, well, I do too. I mean, you know, one of the key, key things is, is this policy of never retreating. You know, I mean, when Alexander and Montgomery took over of, in the Middle East um, and of Eighth Army in August 1942, they said, right, that's it. No more reverses. No more retreats. From now on, we only go forward. And basically, with a few except very few, very small exceptions, that is the strategy that holds good for the rest of the war. And, and you wow. know, that is incredibly important. Yes. So when you take a hill, you, you stay on that hill and you don't have to retake it. You know, when you take Sicily, it's not then abandoned. And, and that means that when you're landing, when you're doing an amphibious operation like Sicily or Salerno or cross-channel invasion of Normandy, you're, you're stacking it absolutely as in favour of success as you possibly can. You know, and, yeah. and, and that you're not, and that everyone knows that you, that, that this undertaking has been done with a huge amount of care, um, time, thought, precision, all the rest of it. That doesn't mean, say, you're kind of immune to cock-ups or immune to, you know, you fought through absolutely everything, but you've done the very best within the limits limitations that are imposed upon you to make that succeed. And I think that is absolutely the right attitude. And I think all those historians who kind of grumble and complain about the slowness of allied advances and all the rest of it, they're not taking into consideration that factor of morale or the operational challenges involved. So then what would you, obviously we've talked about so many different components of the campaign here, what would you, if you had to boil it down to maybe one or two things, what is the legacy of Sicily 43? Well, I think it should be a lot, I mean, one of the reasons why I felt compelled to write the book was because I think the legacy of the Sicilian campaign is actually a kind of a bit of a black mark. You know, it took them too long, the Germans escaped, 40,000, nearly 40,000 Germans escaped, blah, 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 you know, they shouldn't have done. Um, and I just, I just think it's, you know, I think those criticisms are completely unfounded. I mean, I just, you know, and again, you know, I've, I've said it a couple of times, but you know, when you're there in Sicily and you're looking out over this incredible terrain, I mean, it's beautiful, but it's also brutal. I mean, it's incredibly harsh kind of, you know, particularly in high summer in July and August, it's got this sort of incredible sort of bleached, washed out kind of, it's all ochres and kind of pale creams and kind of dusty kind of burnt umbers and things. I mean, you know, it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's, it's a harsh, harsh, harsh landscape. 
And, you know, you look at that, and you just think, God, 38 days to cancel this place. That's unbelievable going. Uh, and to go back to the evacuations, and one of the big criticisms of the fact that the Germans escaped, you know, 39,000 escaped, all that needs qualifying. I mean, first of all, it's only about 25,000 fighting troops that escape, which is less than two divisions, which is not great when you've probably pumped in, you know, five divisions of worth of, of, of men. You know, 25,000 fighting troops out of, you know, 90,000, you know, it's not great, really. Um, and also, if you look at evacuations in the Second World War, nearly all of them are successful, not least Dunkirk, of course, you know, where 338,000 men, I mean, there is not a single man left who is not capable of getting board a ship at, at Dunkirk, you know. So uh, right at the very end of the war, Operation Hannibal, two million Germans evacuated from East Prussia and from the, uh, what, what had been the old Danzig corridor um, at the end of the war, under the noses of the Russians, when the Germans have basically got absolutely nothing left. Um, you know, the evacuation from Greece, when the British, I mean, I think it's like 41,000 out of 46,000, something like that. I'm, you know, they're bullpot figures, but something like that. You know, out of the 42,000 men on Crete, 29,000 escape. You know, so most evacuations are successful. Uh, and if there's one place that's easy to evacuate from, it's the Straits of Messina. 333 guns either side. You know, so it's, it's just impossible to get in low with air forces. There's no way any Navy are going to get there because they're going to get absolutely smashed to pieces. I mean, it's just absolutely sitting ducks if they try and do that. Yeah. Um, the fact that so comparatively few troops get away in the, in the big scheme of things, I think is, it's of absolutely no strategic impact on the future Italian campaign that 25,000 fighting men get away to fight another day i mean really yeah even things i mean that is you know by 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 may 1944 there's 24 italian um, german divisions in italy so less than two is not a decisive factor at all so i think you know my, my point is is that actually we should you should look at sicily as this kind of this tipping point this moment where the allies start to really become quite serious they start to kind of work out what their modus operandi is they work out how to mm -hmm. harness air land and sea together they work how to operate together as coalition forces side by side um and um they instigate a kind of new way of fighting um which has never been seen before anywhere in the world and you know it proves to be pretty successful in the big scheme of things so you know yeah. I'm, I'm much less down on things than, than a lot of historians have been and in sort of over the last 40 50 years i guess we like an update uh, legacy on this show <laughs> <laughs> finish on a high note yeah thank you that's exactly. been so interesting well i think it's a really good bit to finish on looking at 43 and now we want to know a bit about you you know so, oh, right. yeah because we think we look at all these fantastic historians and i think you are a very well known name in the military history world but like we'd love to know like what actually got you into history Oh, that's a well, that's a good question. Um, well, I, I suppose we sort of I grew up with it. My older brother, Tom, is a very eminent um, classicist and historian and man of letters and translator and general kind of sort of uh, um, massive brain box. And um, we were both very interested in, in history when we were kids. So we used to, you know, summer holidays, we'd go and visit sort of, you know, castles in North Wales and Hadrian's Wall and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That's where kind of sort of the Holland family holidays would be, um, rather than sort of going off to you know, warmer climbs. And, um, and history was just kind of something we were really, really into. And I, you know, I always enjoyed it at school, I studied at university, um, and, and really enjoyed it. And one of the things that was, you know, when I was at university, I, I did my, um, my dissertation, and that involved quite a lot of primary research. And I really enjoyed that I kind of enjoyed the detective work of it of handling primary sources and all that kind of stuff. I thought that was really, really interesting. But but the Second World War, you know, I'd been quite interested in, in you know commando comics and action men and airfix models and stuff when i was really really small but then like a lot of teenagers you know i sort of you know your horizons narrow don't they to kind of sort of parties and sport and girlfriends and you know and mates and going to the pub and stuff and um you, you know you, you so you, you know once horizons are kind of pretty small and I, I sort of just sort of lost interest really um but then I was in my late twenties, and, and I was actually I was playing cricket, and, and I was batting, and I was at the non-strikers end, and suddenly it was this amazing roar somewhere over mid-wicket, and um, I looked up and saw this sort of thing, sort of uh, this machine with this incredible noise, sort of pirouetting around the sky, and I turned to the umpire and went, "Wow, what is that?" And he went, "That's a Spitfire." <laughs> 
Oh my god! And I went, wow, that's amazing. And literally, the next weekend was Flying Legends at Duxford, so I, I I took myself off there, and and you know it was kind of you know it was like Spitfire porn. I mean, it was just amazing. Uh, uh, and there were all these Spitfires and Hurricanes and Mustangs and stuff, kind of doing their stuff. Um, uh, and I bought a book called Spitfire Pilot by David Crook, who had been a Battle of Britain pilot, and he'd flown in Six O Nine Squadron, and Six O Nine Squadron was my local fighter command airfield at middle wallet which is just sort of down the road from where i live and um and i thought well you know obviously it's, it's meant to be and i just got completely obsessed with the whole thing i've got slightly obsessive nature anyway and um and i just needed to know everything i could so i started you know i had this idea for a novel which was sort of set in the kind of love loss and war backdrop of battle of britain and stuff and, and i started researching it really heavily and i really really loved the research i was lucky enough to meet a load of a load of veterans uh, pilots and all sorts of amazing people that had lived through the war and lived through the battle of britain and stuff and 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 i just suddenly realized that this was my kind of you know that was my damascene moment really um but, and that's where it all came from and i you know here i am kind of sort of best part of um 20 years later and you know, I just still find the whole thing just so enduringly fascinating, you know, the, as, and, you know, I keep saying it, but the human drama of it, it's just so intense, isn't it? And you know, the fact that it was truly global, I mean, I've been lucky enough in that time to kind of, you know, I've been to Norway, I've been to the Arctic Circle, I've been to Guadalcanal, I found kind of, you know, Marine Corps barbed wire and discarded um, hand grenade tins in the jungle of Guadalcanal. I've been to north um northeast europe um northeast india and seen in fall and kahima i've been to you know all around italy alamein the desert i mean it was truly global and and it's just it's just fascinating to kind of marry that that human drama with actually the nuts and bolts of, of what was actually happening and you know you just learn stuff all the time i mean it's it's it's, it's a it's a subject that is is inexhaustible i would say it's brilliant how even a subject like World War II that's obviously so ingrained in our popular culture and it's been done so much and um, every time you look at it you will just find a new fact and you'll love it and that's why history is like a self-sustaining yeah. subject to always find yeah well I've somewhere. just I'm you know I'm, I'm working up on a, on a on a documentary about the death of Hitler and I've been reading reading up about that my god it's just amazing I mean <laughs> you know all the you know what was going on in the Soviet Union it's like a sort of Cold War noir thriller of this kind of sort of deception of what was going on and trying to piece together what did actually happen in the bunker in the last days you know the downfall scenes that we've all seen on, on on the movie and everything i mean but it is just fascinating and there again you've got this just immense human drama being played out i mean i've just been sort of reading this morning in the kind of final bit of this book i've been looking at reading about it uh, um about you know the effects of cyanide <laughs> it's really grim but it's fascinating as well i mean you know it's it's not the kind of sort of painless um clean death that you would imagine i mean it's absolutely horrible uh, um but amazing uh, and the residue of that on 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 eva braun's teeth and hitler's teeth and stuff it's just it's just amazing and what finally happens to his body you know it, it's kind of buried most of it is buried apart from a bit of his skull and his teeth buried first outside berlin then they're moved to a kind of parking lot near Magdeburg. And then finally, on the order of Yuri Andropov, who at the time is uh, um, head of the KGB, in 1970, they're disinterred. So this is Hitler, Eva Braun, the Goebbels, their kids, um, and General Krebs. They're, they're disinterred, incinerated once and for all, and their ashes are thrown into a minor tributary of the River Elba. And that is the wow. end of the Führer in 1970. I mean, it's just, you literally couldn't make it up. I mean, it's just incredible. So there's all this sort of stuff, you know, uh, um, still to find out. So from the very top to the very bottom, and I still find it absolutely fascinating, you know, the experience of, of, of the ordinary man sort of caught up in these events. And, and right now I'm working on a book where I'm following just a single unit from VE Day to D, um, from D Day to VE Day, a British armoured tank unit. Oh my God, it's just amazing. You know, and again, piecing that all together, the kind of, you know, following the trails, you know, it's still this detective work. It's just, it's just, it's fascinating. I love it. Your passion is so radiating. Like. But we have a final round of like kind of questions for you. Now, sure. this is inspired by a podcast uh, called The Good, The Bad, The Rugby. And they basically ask a quick, it's like a quick fire round. <laughs> so your yeah. first instant kind of response to these questions, okay. that's what we want. Okay, Go so are you ready? So yes. your favourite historical figure in all of history? Uh, Phil Marshall Alexander. Okay. Your least favourite figure in all of history? Hitler. That's a given. Um, <laughs> your favourite event at any historical period? 
Battle Britain. Okay. If you're going to go when if you're going to go on a road trip and you have three people from history in your car, who would you want with you? Um, Alexander, uh, definitely. Um, um, gosh, um, Lee Miller, the photographer. Uh, and I love Ernie her. <laughs> and Ernie Pyle. Oh, lovely. We won't tell Al that you didn't say him. That's fine. Um, well, he's not really a historical <laughs> figure, is he? He's still alive. Don't fear. It doesn't count. Um, and then finally, uh, I think this is a lovely one to kind of finish this all up on. What has been the best moment of your career? So oh, fun. goodness me. Obviously, so uh, come. Probably flying in a Spitfire. Okay, I'd say that. That was that pretty good. It. I'm that's not going to lie. Oh, in terms of kind of, sort of, of heightened excitement and adrenaline surge and just general kind of sort of wanting to kind of whoop and squeal and laugh <laughs> and hurl and all those sort of things, it has to be that. I mean, you know, taking off in the back in the in the, in the Spitfire and seeing that elliptical wing and seeing the shadow of the elliptical wing and then seeing it separate, that was pretty good. And then what we did is we came in and the final fly down, we came in and, and did a sort of beat up of the airfield. So we came in, dived down at high speed did a, a barrel roll and then then flew up again and I remember just thinking wow this is pretty amazing oh yes I think we're all pretty yeah. jealous sorry. whether we're listening yes, or sorry. The, the, the three of us yeah. Yeah, yeah well you know sorry about that <laughs> if I can but have half ask. the historical experiences you have had over your career I will be one happy historian yeah. so thank you so much for coming on today it's been oh, no, so thank you for having interesting me. No, well, it's been lovely to see you all and talk to you all. Thank you. Okay, and that was the wonderful James Holland talking about his incredible book, Sicily 1943. You can buy James's book for 30% off at bookdepository.com. Join us next week when we have the first of our PhD chats, where we have the lovely Jack Abernathy on with us to talk about the 80 Years' War. Until next time, I'm Zach White. I'm Olivia Smith. And I'm Phoebe Style. This is Kaki Malaki signing off.